I have a message from God to you, and we will find that message in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. read this morning the first four verses only of 1 Corinthians 15. Will you bow in prayer with me? We are amazed and astounded, O Lord God, that in the Holy Scriptures, Your character, your love, your mercy, your grace is revealed to us. That the one true and living God, the triune God, one God in three persons, that you have planned our redemption and that our Savior's resurrection from the dead is confirmation and more of all that you have planned for your people. And we ask that you would continue to work in the hearts and lives of all of your people here, every believer in Jesus Christ, that we may continue on to follow and know the Lord and to live out of the fullness of what it means that Jesus Christ, our Savior, arose from the dead on the third day. That he lives for us, intercedes for us, and is coming again. But we also pray this morning that every little child will hear the message of the resurrection today. That they will know that when the minister speaks God's word and speaks truth, that Christ is the one who preaches to them. And we pray for those who are here today that do not know Jesus Christ. And may those who are here that do not know Christ this day come to know Christ. May they be confronted with what it means that the living and true God tells us in the word of his great love and mercy, of his free invitation, of his effectual call, but also that the day is coming in which you will judge the world by this one whom you have appointed, and you have proven it by raising him from the dead. O Lord, some need to see your judgment in order to understand your grace this morning. May all of these things be accomplished because you know every heart, and may the Spirit of God be working in ways incalculable. In these things we pray in the name of our once crucified but now risen and ascended Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand as we read the first verses of 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses. This is the Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance 
with the Scriptures. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have been privileged over these last two Sunday mornings and on Good Friday to focus on the meaning of the crucifixion of our Savior, the death of our Lord, His shed blood. But it's very noteworthy, will you not agree, that as Paul comes to a chapter in 1 Corinthians that elaborates upon the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, that he begins by defining the gospel by showing that the death of Jesus and his resurrection are mutually dependent. That is, the gospel is not only the death of Jesus, and the gospel is not only the resurrection of Jesus, but both the death and the resurrection of Jesus are at the core of what it means that there is good news for us sinners. The death of Jesus makes no sense without the resurrection. The resurrection makes no sense without the cross. Taken together, we have gospel. And so let's look at how these facts hang together and see this fundamental news without which you and I cannot be saved. Did you hear that without this fundamental news, you and I cannot be saved? How then does Paul define the gospel in these verses? Well, first, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins is essential to the gospel. Why? Well, the justice of God demanded it. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And someone, and only the Son of God could do it, had to pay those wages in order that we be saved. In his death, Jesus was the surety of his people, and that's why it is gospel. Surety is a wonderful word. It means someone who bears the legal obligations of another person. And when Jesus went to the cross, he bore your legal obligations before God, believer. Isaiah 53, 8 and 12, For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. But also, this death of Jesus for our sins was necessary because only by his death could God's wrath against sinners be satisfied. And we spent all of last Sunday morning looking at this from Romans 3.25. God set him forth to be propitiation by faith in his blood, the sacrifice that satisfies and removes divine justice. But this is also gospel that he died for our sins. It is also gospel because by it he accomplished our redemption, which means that we were in bondage and needed to be set free, and the only way in which we could be set free was through his shed blood on the cross. Romans 3.24, being justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But it is also gospel, this death of Jesus for our sins, because without it we could not be reconciled to God. There was enmity, hatred between us. God, being the holy God, must have just wrath against us, 
we being sinners hated according to the Bible, the true and the living God. The only way in which we could be reconciled is through the blood of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And the death of Jesus for our sins is good news because through his death, the righteousness of Christ that he wove upon the loom of his cross is imputed to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The only way in which you can stand before a holy and a righteous God acceptably is if the righteousness, the perfect record of Christ is yours and received by faith alone. Now listen, I'm not just checking off a list with you. When the scriptures teach us that it was necessary that he die for our sins, it is because you need a surety. You need someone who will bear your legal obligations and pay the penalty for your sins. It is because you needed a sacrifice that would satisfy divine justice. It is because you needed an accomplished redemption once for all so that you might be delivered from your sin. It is because you needed to be reconciled to God, and it was only through the blood of the cross that made it possible. It is because you need, through his death, that perfect record of righteousness imputed to your account to be received by faith alone. So I want to begin this Easter Sunday morning by asking the question, do you know this Redeemer? Do you understand that it is only as verse 3 tells us that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that only through him you can be saved and redeemed? Do you know Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners like us? Now Paul wants us also to see that The propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus is the teaching of the whole word of God. The canon of scripture had not even been complete at this point. Paul is looking back, of course, to the Old Testament, and he is saying the Old Testament taught us all of this. According to the scriptures, he tells us, that is according to the Old Testament, we know that he must be the one who died for our sins. And I need only point to that one passage, Isaiah 53, upon which we looked on Good Friday to catch the significance of this. Jesus, you might remember, reproved his disciples in Luke 24 for not believing what the prophets had predicted about him. Before Festus, Paul the apostle said that none other things than those which Moses and the prophets say should come, that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first to rise from the dead, These only did he preach before Festus. Romans 3.21 tells us the gospel was witnessed to by the law and the prophets. The wonderful thing to realize about this is simply that, of course, the prophets could only predict the cross because this was the eternal plan of the triune God from eternity. Prophecy is based on the predestination of God. The only way that the prophet could say, this is what will happen. The Messiah will come. He will die for sinners like us. The only way that that could happen is that God in council decreed that day. 
so that what is predicted must come about because God has planned it, so that sinners like us sitting here today might be redeemed from our awful hell-deserving sins. The prophets could only predict what God intended to happen. Now, this is a wonderful and amazing thing. I've been privileged over these past weeks to give you a few quotes from Stephen Carnock, one of those wonderful Puritan theologians and pastors that wrote with such depth about so many things, including the cross. Volume four of his works filled with references to the cross. But this quotation that I want to give you and ask you to listen to carefully actually comes from his work on the existence and attributes of God, page 572, if you want to check it when you get home. But here is what he says. He, he's speaking of the Father, he, the Father, listen to this, people, listen. He was desirous to hear him groaning and see him bleeding, that we might not groan under his frowns and bleed under his wrath. He spared not him that he might spare us, refused not to strike him that he might be well pleased with us, drenched his sword in the blood of his son that it might not forever be wet with our blood, but that his goodness might forever triumph in our salvation. He was willing to have his son made man and die rather than man should perish who had delighted to ruin himself. He seemed to degrade his son for a time from what he was. Now will you? Will you take it in by faith? The depth of what it means in this simple verse 3 that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures? Will you embrace Him by faith? Will you cast aside every other frame upon which you lean and lean wholly on the name of Jesus who died for sinners like us? Will you trust in Christ someone here today who has not trusted in Jesus? Will you trust Him as the one who died for sinners whose blood is sufficient to remove your sin and your guilt? Will you trust Him? Now, Paul is defining the gospel, and he must start there, that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But also, Paul says, secondly, that Jesus was buried. And he says here in verse 4 that he was buried. Look at verses 3 and 4 together. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried. Paul includes the burial of Jesus as part of the gospel. Now, does that surprise you? Why is this gospel, why is this good news that Jesus was buried? Well, let me give you several reasons. It is good news because the burial meant that he was really dead. When he died on the cross, he died on the cross. That when he proclaimed, it is finished, it was finished. That he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And John tells us that Nicodemus brought about a hundred pounds to anoint Jesus' body. When he died, he really died. When he was put in the tomb, he was dead. 
And this also is a fulfillment of the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 9, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because remember, it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a rich man, in whose tomb Jesus was placed. But it also constitutes part of his victory, because he was not forsaken by his father. As we heard in Psalm 16 this morning, his flesh did not see corruption. God did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. But also it is part of the gospel because Jesus was buried in the certain hope of his own resurrection. When Peter preached on the book of, in, the, in the book of Acts, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, he drew upon Psalm 16 and other passages, and Peter preached, Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou thy wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption? Now, this is good news for us because I don't suppose there's a person here that has not at one time or another feared the grave. Am I right about that? Who has not awakened in the night, you feel your heart pounding, and the thought comes upon your mind, maybe I will not live till the morning. What would happen to me if I died? And it's the habit of men and women today to to push that aside and not give thought to it. I think we should meditate on it. I think it is a profound thing to meditate upon. What happens to me when I die? Where will I go while I die? when I die? And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you fear the grave? If you believe in Jesus, he has gone through the experience of the grave for you. He has gone through the experience of the grave and he has come out the other end. And you need not fear the grave nor fear it for believing loved ones who are yet in the grave awaiting the resurrection. But his burial also means that the resurrection of Jesus was corporeal. That is, it was physical. And how important this is. There are many pulpits this morning in which there is a kind of Easter service in which the minister is preaching Jesus rose from the dead. What he really means is he rose somehow spiritually. Or in the preaching of the word, maybe you hear something about the resurrection, but he believes that Jesus' bones are bleaching under a Palestinian sky. This minister doesn't believe that. This minister believes God's word. The same body that was placed in the tomb came out of the tomb. Jesus body rose physically. It was transformed. It was glorified, totally spirit controlled, but it was the same body that was placed in the tomb. Praise God that was raised from the tomb. His humiliation is good news for us. What was hard for him was good news for us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question 27 Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And the great Puritan Thomas Watson said, Had not Christ been made flesh, we had been made a curse. Had he not been incarnate, we had been incarcerate and had been forever in prison. Now, this is humility. Will you contemplate it for a moment? The second person of the Trinity, God himself, entered this world. Without ceasing to be God, he became man. Perfect union of these 
of these two natures in one person. Tell me if that is not humility. And then he obeyed the law that we broke and he went to the cross. But think of it. God in the flesh went to a cross and bore God's wrath. And God in the flesh went to the grave. He went to the tomb because he loved you and would save you from your sins. And this should strike our pride. And we should see something here that is totally and completely unique. There's nothing else like it. There's no one like Jesus. Klaus Gilder, the Dutch theologian, said, Name one of the world's sages who, having been buried, buried all his own with him and raised these from the dead. You cannot name one. No philosopher has ever done such a thing. No sage has ever done such a thing. No world religion leader has ever done such a thing. Jesus did it. He died for us. He was buried for us. That's gospel, but it's not yet the whole gospel. Thirdly, Christ rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Look with me again at verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in, according, in accordance with the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, Luke 24, 27, his resurrection was foretold by Moses and the prophets, Jesus said. Uh, Genesis three fifteen uh, proclaims that there would be a risen Lord, the promise that all nations would be blessed, Genesis 22, Psalm 16 that we read this morning, the lifting up of his head in Psalm 110, the dividing of the spoil with the strong. The third day takes us back to Jonah. As Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so also Jesus would be three days in the grave, taking a part of a day as a whole, as the Jews typically did. So it's according to the Bible, according to the Scriptures, according to the Old Testament, not only that he would die on the cross and be buried, but that he would be raised for our justification. So I ask you, why is this gospel, this resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Well, notice verse 14 of chapter 15, in which Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ have perished. So Paul's argument here with those who deny the resurrection is, if the dead are not going to be raised, the Christian dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then the dead will not be raised because of the union of Christ with his people. So it's essential for us to understand why this is gospel. Now I want to tell you something. As I was preparing this sermon, I came up with and probably could have well extended the list, I came up with 13 reasons that this is gospel for us. But I would have kept you here until next Easter, (laughs) expounding it. That would have been fun for me, but maybe not for you. So what I did is I said, okay, I'll go to the Heidelberg Catechism, and I'll let the Heidelberg help us out this morning. Question 45, what doth the resurrection of Jesus profit us? And he gives three reasons, not 13. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he has purchased for us by his death. 
Secondly, we are also by his power raised to a new life. Lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. So three truths. Why is this gospel? The resurrection of Jesus is gospel first because by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb, you, believer, are made partakers of Christ's righteousness purchased on the cross. Now, how does this happen? Romans 4.25, he was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. 1 Timothy 3 tells us that Jesus' resurrection was his justification. That is, the amen of the Father over the it is finished of the Son meant that Jesus really accomplished the removal of our guilt on the cross, and we, by virtue of our union with him, now partake in his righteousness by which alone we are acceptable to God. So the righteousness that was woven on the loom of the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ is applied to us by his resurrection from the dead. That's good news. We would not be justified if there were no resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But secondly, the Heidelberg helps us to understand that we are raised to a new life, those of us who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. We are raised once who were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. We died in the first Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us we are begotten again, born again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So do you see? At the moment of God's good pleasure, God spiritually resurrects his people. Some lost person may be sitting here this morning. You don't care anything about, about the gospel. You, you've been indifferent to it. All of a sudden, God's spirit comes upon you, regenerates you. And you see a new world, and you hear the Bible and the proclamation of the word in a new way. And he implants a new principle of life in you. And it is the power of Jesus' resurrection, according to the Bible, that accomplishes this spiritual life. And you are born again. You are regenerated. You are spiritually raised because Jesus' resurrection power is at work to save sinners throughout the world. Now let me single out, we are raised to a new life. Because if there is not a new life, we are not raised. Do you think that we can have been raised by God's resurrection power from the dead and there's no change in our lives? Or that we can live like the devil and say we're born again? No! Sovereign, irresistible grace makes us new creatures and gives us a new heart by the resurrection power of Jesus. Romans 6, 4, as Christ was raised from the dead, even so also we should walk in newness of life. And so we have new affections. We have new desires. We have new propensities. We have a new communion with God. We now repent of sin and we believe in Christ. And so the person who says, I can take drugs, I can cling to porn, I care nothing for God's word. I live in fornication. I have no desire for Christ. I have no desire for worship. I have no desire for God's people. I have no desire to submit to his word. I'm a carnal Christian. No, you are not. You are not a carnal Christian. 
you are not a Christian at all. Because the resurrection power of Jesus changes people. It doesn't leave us in our sins. It doesn't make us yet perfect. That happens when we reach heaven. But it really, radically, and truly changes our lives. And so it is gospel because it can do that. He can do that. The Spirit of God can do that. It raises the dead to life. And every believer in this room has been raised by the resurrection power of Jesus to newness of life. But then the catechism reminds us as it summarizes the Bible, thirdly, there's another reason that the resurrection of Jesus is gospel, good news. And it is because the resurrection of Jesus is the sure pledge of our blessed resurrection when Jesus comes again on the last day. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Will you look at that verse, verse 20? You're in that chapter. He says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what that verse means? It means his resurrection is the first fruits, and therefore it is certain that the complete harvest of believers will follow, since in Jesus the resurrection harvest has already begun. He is not going to leave your body in the grave, or the body of your Christian loved one in the grave. He loves every atom. He loves every molecule. It doesn't matter if they have been spread across the globe. The time will come when they will be raised. And so when we come to the end of this marvelous chapter on the resurrection, if you'll look at verse 50 and following, this is what we read. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord... Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. Praise God. Jesus lives and so shall I. Thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. 
What is the fundamental of the gospel, the, the core of the gospel, those basic elements of the gospel without which you and I cannot be saved? Jesus died for his people, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Jesus lives. Now, I want to bring three final applications. Not that we haven't been applying all along, but three final applications to you. First, I want to speak lovingly, tenderly, but seriously, soberly to whoever you may be here today, and you're an unbeliever, you've not yet trusted in Christ. Because you see, the scriptures teach, you find it in the book of Daniel, Jesus said it in John 5, the scriptures teach that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust when Jesus comes again. And if you reject the Son of God, if you receive him, then it's your greatest joy. But if you reject the gospel message, then Easter should be a terror to you. The unbeliever's body, so cherished now, will be fitted for torment forever. That, that mouth that now curses God, or perhaps you don't curse God overtly, but you live for yourself, you speak for yourself, will be fitted for torment forever. Uh, those hands that you use to serve yourself and not God will be fitted for torment forever. Those eyes with which you take in things that are contrary to God's law, those ears with which you hear those things willingly, desiring to hear those things that are just ungodly, your body will be fitted for eternal torment. And in Acts 17, Paul preached, God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the promise of God that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you are without hope in this world, and you are without hope as you look to the next world if you do not trust the crucified, risen Lord. And maybe you say, well, I'm very religious. Anybody can play religion. I'm not asking if you have gone through religious exercises. Do you know Christ? Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And so God's ambassador this morning, you're warned and you were called. You were called to believe and to repent. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Now, believer, I want to say this to you. Thomas Boston said it beautifully, a dying day is a good day for a godly man. <laughs> Your body, purchased by Christ's blood, will be raised to stand as a trophy of grace forever. And you suffer now, but glory is to come. And with Job... Will you joyfully confess those marvelous words? 
For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Can you confess that? I know that my Redeemer liveth. I'm going to see him with these very eyes in the resurrection in the last day. Can you confess that? Do you know that's true? Do you believe that? You know, sometimes the sermon is in the grammar, and I don't overdo this, I hope, but agergatai is the word that is used here for raised. It's a perfect tense. That means that he is raised and he continues to be raised. That being the case, all of the benefits that come with his resurrection continue to be the benefits of believers. You have a risen Lord who will live forever, and everything that he has done for you on the cross through the tomb, now that empty tomb because he rose from the dead through his resurrection, it all belongs to you now and it always shall. And so thirdly, I'm asking you, believer, will you stir up this hope within you and live accordingly? You see, in those first two verses of chapter 15, Paul says, now I would remind you, he wants to remind them, and I want to remind you, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul says, believe it, hold it fast continue in it. And I'm saying to you, believe it, hold it fast, don't let it go. May it grip you, and may you always hold it as your dearest treasure. So believers, stir up the hope within you. Now, I've seen in more than one source that when Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, that the coded message from France that was to be seen probably, I'm assuming, on the ships that were returning, banners and so forth, that the coded message could not be clearly seen on the British coast. And so through the fog, all that could be read was, Wellington defeated. And imagine how deflated British people were to read, Wellington defeated. But then the fog lifted. And after the fog lifted, they could see the whole banner, all the message. Wellington defeated Napoleon. You get the point, don't you? Darkness turned to brilliant day. And so I'm saying to us, oh believer, let us help one another. Let us not live in the fog as if what we read is Christ defeated. But read the whole message and live accordingly. Christ defeated the devil, hell, sin, guilt, and death forever. Up from the grave he arose. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.